I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. Leslie Streeter is the Black Carrie Bradshaw, and that's a reference to the HBO show Sex and the City for anyone who, one, didn't spend their 20s hungover on a couch watching that show, or two, wasn't old enough to watch it the first time, and is also not old enough to watch it now in a form of fake nostalgia like Gen Z enjoys watching Friends for reasons I... Uh, do not fully understand. The point is, Leslie, like Carrie Bradshaw, was a single lady, a writer, totally fine with being unmarried because, look, there are more important things than being married. That's something I fully believe. Having been married twice, marriage is not the thing. It's a thing. Leslie is a person whose writing, whose life are just full of pop culture references. So within just a few minutes of our conversation, we had discussed rom-coms. Thank you. Uh, the uh, Sweet Home Alabama, you bought a baby, a baby. to a bar. A bar. No, yeah, so we, we did that once. Um, we went to, to a restaurant that is really a bar. It had to be you. Quentin Tarantino. And there's a video of us dancing to Harry Connick Jr.'s It Had to Be You. And we're, we're doing the Uma Thurman, John Travolta we had talked about police procedurals. And watch Law and Order by myself. We talked medical dramas. Grey's Anatomy. Derek is dead. And reality TV. It was like American Idol for Rutgers. Get up! Get up! Get up! Oh man, this is real now. Even get attacked by dogs. Leslie is a black widow, not a spider. A black human woman whose husband died. Because eventually, when she least expected it, she did find a guy who she had already found before, which is also a Carrie Bradshaw parallel. No spoilers for the ending of that series. The first time Leslie met Scott, it was ninth grade in Baltimore, Maryland. And he was sitting in front of me, and it was the 80s, so... The clothing was probably all terrible. It was terrible. But I remember him having like this series of very loud colored shirts that kind of clashed with themselves because that's what you did. It was the 1980s. It was 1985. And he had very dark hair and it was wavy and it kind of curled to this point in his neck. It's what we call pretty hair. He had pretty hair. Um, and he was loud and a goofball. He was like wild and crazy guy. And he was also incredibly smart. He had um, dyslexia, which had been, in the 80s, was still a new thing to be diagnosed. They just said, you were dumb, and they put you in a class someplace. But his mom, who was an educator, figured this out kind of early. So it gave him both a sense of accomplishment because he was able to do so much with it and also kind of a chip on his shoulder. So he had that kind of like, we're going to gamble in the hallway and crash parties and drive my Camaro too fast. So he just was hilarious. And I did not know him very well, but I knew him well enough to know that he was cute. And that also he was a lot. And I was a dork. I was kind of a popular dork, but I was a dork. And so our sort of extracurricular lives did not really converge at all. Not until they were all grown up and it was time for their 20-year high school reunion and they reconnected on Facebook. Lots had changed. Leslie wasn't a nerd. She was a cool writer who lived in Florida. Scott's pretty hair was gone. He was now fully bald, but he was still funny and smart, and they got to messaging and texting. 
hey, do you remember me? I'm like, yeah, whatever. And he was like, you know, I have family who live in Boca and I've lived there actually recently, but I've moved back to Baltimore probably temporarily. If I come back, I'll look you up. And I was like, that's great. And I was in a series of bad relationships that particular year. So I didn't have time for like other people in my head because I was busy dealing with dumbness. So by the time he came back in December and asked me out, I was done with horrible people for the moment, but he was so nice and funny and kind of awkward. And it just, I was like, wait, do I think he's cute? What is this about? Because he wasn't terrible. So why would I find him attractive? He was a functional human being. When you're used to dating non-functional human beings, when you call yourself Carrie Bradshaw and you're good with being single or jumping from crap relationship to uh, bad relationship, the possibility of a good relationship kind of freaks you out. And Scott was going to be a good relationship. Leslie could tell. And I think part of what scared me about him is that I knew too. And that I knew that I was going to then have to stop being an idiot. All these years I had said, Oh, I want this. If only I found the right person. And then I would pick these people that were not that person. And my friends would say, if you really want to settle down and get married, why are you dating the artist who lives in the studio, the, the you know, who talks about his process all the time and it wants to basically live in a van down by the river? That's not your guy. Why are we talking about that guy? And I'm like, what? He could be. I could change him. Did not did not change that guy. And it's fine. So when I met Scott, I had to really say, this is not only a viable option, this is someone that you instantly were intrigued by and care about and have so much to say. So she gets her act together and she goes all in with Scott. You're not taking around when you're 38, you know, because you're like, all right, let's do this thing. So we were like, yes, you know, we talked about wanting kids. We talked about adoption. We talked about um, whether or not we felt our kids had to be biological. And if we did not, if we got married, if we did not conceive, you know, naturally or easily, were we going to do a lot of stuff or would we be pursuing adoption and other methods while we were doing that? And we went, yeah, let's just let it go. We'll do it. We'll do all of it. Leslie and Scott do end up having trouble conceiving. When they do that testing and get the results back, it's inconclusive. And since their wedding, they've had so much grief in their family. There have been deaths back to back to back to back. Leslie's dad, Scott's mom, grandparents, great-grandparents, just this constant grief train. So maybe it's that, maybe it's not. And the two of them put the conceiving a kid thing on hold and they start to consider adoption. And my sister just had a baby and she got pregnant very easily. I did not. We're twins. So that's always fun. And I was too far into it to be like, now I'm going to spend time waving my fist at the sky and asking God, why? Oh, why, Jesus? Why? No, I was like, you know what? It, it'll happen. If it happens, it didn't happen. So we were like, okay, now it's time for us to start these classes. So we started in December, about six months after my dad died. And 
for whatever reason, we didn't finish the classes then. So we started over again in the spring because most of the people in these classes are white who are doing the adopting. And most of the classes, the kids are black or brown. So we'd have these classes where they would go, okay, so say your neighbor's racist and they say something racist to your kid, right? So what do you do? And Scott's like, you beat him up. We're like, no, you can't beat them up. You can't be beating people up. I mean, maybe you can. You just shouldn't talk about it in class where they determine if you should have a child. But Leslie and Scott pass the classes. They get their home study approved and they're ready for an older kid, a kid who's already in the foster to adopt program, whose parental rights have already been relinquished. That's the plan. At least that's the ideal. But instead... A relative called to say that this baby had been born and he was two days old. And I was like, oh, okay, this is great. I don't know what to do here. And she was like, well, you know, I cannot take him. So we're looking for local family as well. But I know that you and Scott are in this process to adopt. So what do you want to do? And I was like, so, um, and I remember also, going, three days old is so like, so fresh. That's a very fresh human. It's a fresh human. And so we were thinking we would get like, we would have to be the parents that got a four or five year old through some trauma in their life, you know, that not like a, yeah, fresh off the fresh out the womb person who doesn't even like know he has feet yet. It's just this, like a, a person who has no object permanence. And now you're like, wait, wait, I, like, <laughs> not what we thought. So I remember I called Scott. Sometimes he picked his cell phone up. Sometimes he didn't. But he did not like me to call him because he was working, you know, and he was a manager and, you know, to call him at his desk. But I had to call him because I needed to get this moving, you know. And when that happens, you feel like there's a, a the stork is hanging over the baby going, I'm going to take him back. I'm going to take him back. I'm going to fly him someplace. I was like, no. So I called him. And Scott says, Heck yes. And Leslie calls her family member and says, heck yes. It was a six month process to get him here, but we went almost every month to Maryland to see him. And it kept being hard, but we had done hard. We always did hard. We were looking forward to the easy part. All the parents in the world are laughing at the idea of an easy part, even Leslie. But those six months of waiting to bring the baby home are long, and they are hard. I mean, at three months, they got their first overnight visit with the baby. He spent Christmas Eve with Leslie and Scott at Leslie's sister's house, which was their first sleepover and their first Christmas together. And that was the longest night of my life. Day was night, night was day, cats and dogs living together. It was the worst night because this baby was a three-month-old baby. He had no idea who we were, where he was, but he wasn't happy about it. And so we're at my sister's guest room. And so Scott had been like, listen, I'm going to make sure we're doing this equally. It did not feel that way to me during that night. So my, I come out of the room and I have an afro. My sister is like, you look like the girl from the ring. And my hair was all over my head. And I come out and the baby's screaming. And my husband has the temerity and the audacity in Beyonce's 2013 to be laughing and talking with my brother-in-law. And I go, ah! 
<laughs> he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I gotta go get it. You have to go get the baby! You know, so that that was a crazy night. And my mother said, friends are calling like, how's she doing? She's like, it's gonna work out, I guess. Three months later, they get to go back up to Maryland and bring baby Brooks home with them for real. Brooks is six months old, and he's spent those six months of his life with a foster family who has also been falling in love with him. They're lovely people, but adoption is loss because that child, they're with you now because they lost a connection to their birth family that should be intact and is not. So I always get squicked out about people who are like, I hate, and I'm going to alienate some people, but there's a, a term in the adoption world, gotcha day. And I don't like it because to me, it sounds like you tricked somebody <laughs> into being your kid. It's like, gotcha, snuck up on you, put you in a basket, taking you home. It's like, not the bad, what? I don't like that. They didn't sneak away with the baby in a basket. They packed him up. They got on a plane to bring him back to Florida, which made them so nervous, flying with a baby. But this baby slept the entire flight like a little angel. So maybe it won't be as hard as that one Christmas Eve overnight. Maybe Leslie does have this. So we get to the parking garage and we can't find the car. We cannot find the car. So this brand new baby and I spend our first hour in Florida together sitting on the floor of the parking garage at Palm Beach International Airport as Scott looks for the car and he's pooping and I'm changing the diapers and people are like, is she homeless? What's happening? But she can't be homeless. Her luggage is very nice. I don't understand. Who's this baby? What's happening? And I'm like, we're looking for a trash can. And so I felt at that moment, I was then ushered into this club of mothers who were like, we don't know what the fuck we're doing either. And I felt better because while we're waiting to figure out if we can keep him and do all the stuff and like the social workers come over all the time and sometimes it's scheduled, sometimes it's like pop quiz, you know, and they just show up and just the stuff because this is not it, your baby. The three of them become a little unit. That cocoon that Leslie and Scott had formed around themselves when they'd lost so many family members, it includes Brooks now, too. Like Leslie said, they're his foster parents. They're not his parents yet, so his privacy is really important. It's important for all kids, FYI, but foster parents can't post photos of their baby. They can't share his identity, and Leslie is a columnist for the Palm Beach Post, so she's a person who does share her life, just not this part. We were kind of living a double life because at first we couldn't tell anybody. You know, we, our friends knew, but we couldn't like publicly talk about where he came from. And if people have all those questions, and then people go like, is he African? No, he's not African. He's from Baltimore. So the woman who used to be the black Carrie Bradshaw's just toting a mystery baby around... He comes with her to restaurants that she's writing up for the paper. He goes to bars. Sundays were my favorite day because we would go to Ravens games to watch at a Ravens bar that was local. And we would go in the first half and watch with with Scott. And he'd be so happy. And he'd talk with the baby. He was like, I don't know. And then at halftime, I got to go home, which was brilliant. 
because then the baby would be asleep and I would put him to bed and I would open a bottle of wine and I would order Thai food and watch Law and Order by myself. And Scott would call and say, hey, listen, it looks like another game starting and there's some guys here. Do you mind if I say no? Stay longer because I got to be alone and no one got to tell me there was too much Grey's Anatomy and why is it medical stuff and the baby. I was like, this is my house. It's me, Casa. Yeah, I live here, baby. I live here. That's how it is with the three of them for a year and a half. Their little unit going to dinners, watching football games, and a lot of TV. We'll be right back. We're back, and you already know from the title of this episode and the title of Leslie's book that she's a widow, that Scott died. And that's what we have to talk about now. It's July 29th, 2019, and they've just had this big dinner out at a restaurant with Scott's family. We get back, we put the baby to bed, and we watch Anna Tough Enough, and our favorite guy didn't win. So we're like, eh. And he hadn't been feeling well for like a week. And he, you know, he was a big guy who had, you know, history of heart disease. He had type 2 diabetes. He did not monitor it well. He would take his pills like every fifth day, maybe. I didn't always know this. And I would say, hey, you should do it. But, you know, you're nagging the guy. He has to do it himself. And he's 44 years old. So what do you know? You know, he wasn't feeling well. And I figured it's like allergies, whatever. But he kept saying, I don't know if I feel real good. He was, it was a Wednesday, it was a Tuesday night. And he was going to bed. He was starting a new job the next Monday. So he said, maybe I ought to start weaning myself back onto the medication so it's somewhat regulated before I go back to work. And I go, do what you do. And he never took pills with water because he was disgusting. And he took a Sudafed and shoved it down his mouth and swallowed it. I'm like, you're disgusting. It's like noted. So we go to bed. I had a story I was supposed to write the next morning. And my thing is, if I didn't feel like doing something at night, I just woke up at four o'clock in the morning and did it. Because, you know, as a mom, no one is awake. If everyone's asleep, you can do your thing. I would wake up and watch my own TV shows, do my work, whatever. So I woke up in the morning. At the same time, he woke up because he went to the bathroom and the baby was asleep. And he came back and he said, you, your, did your alarm go off yet? I said, no. And he goes, you want to make out? I'm like, sure, you want to fool around was the quote. And I said, sure. Cause why not? You know, we start kissing and stuff and it hadn't really gone anywhere real serious. And he said, something's wrong. And I of course am annoyed cause it's getting going. You know, I'm like, Hey, 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 I started this dude. You started this. So I turn on the light and it's four o'clock, three thirty, four o'clock in the morning. So I'm not super alert, clued in, and his head is shaking. And I went, "Holy shit! What? You know?" So 
you have no idea in those moments what you're saying, your volume. I imagine I was shrieking, but I couldn't tell. And I was like, Scott, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he fell into the bed. And I'm like, holy shit. So my phone was down the hall. So it could have been five seconds. It could have been five minutes. I don't know. You don't know in those moments. So I go, go running down the hall, trying to find my glasses because I didn't have a contacts in. And I am blind as 80 bats. I'm so blind. So I go running down the hall and I find my glasses. And I'm convinced he's just passed out because no one dies in their first stroke, heart attack, whatever, right? Also, we didn't have a lot of light. I think for some reason he had taken because he was a diva, he had taken the light out of the ceiling fan. So I go down the hall and there's a little light and I go down and I'm like, Scott, Scott, I'm calling 911, I'm calling 911. And I call 911 and I'm trying to explain to them what's going on and it annoyed me because they said, has he taken any drugs? And I said, yes, he took Sudafed in his heart medication last night. And he goes, no, no, drugs. And I'm like, no. And once again, that's their job, right? You know, they have to ask that. But I was annoyed that how dare you said drugs. I said drugs, it's drugs that were prescribed to him by a doctor at the Cleveland Clinic. So I, I attempt CPR, doesn't do anything. Um, I try the breaths, whatever. I know I'm panicking, I know I sound crazy. I go outside and I'm waiting for the ambulance. And he's lying there. I'm, once again, I'm convinced he's passed out, right? I'm like, they'll be here soon, they'll be here soon. Baby's still asleep. It's a miracle. So I run down the, the hall. I'm pretty sure I'm barefoot. I put on shorts. So I'm not standing outside or a dress. And I'm not standing outside like a naked person. So I call my mother and I say, something is happening to Scott. And she goes, okay, call me back. And I, I called my sister and told her. And the ambulance comes and they're working on him, they're working on him, and I don't know if it's good and the baby's still asleep and I'm standing on the driveway and the guy comes out and says, listen, he's not responsive. Leslie calls her friend Lauren, calls her friend Elizabeth. She doesn't even know that she's doing this. I said, so it seems that Scott has died and I need you to come and watch the baby. Okay, bye. And I hung up the phone. And I know I made phone calls like that to people and I told my friends and family to never tell me what I said because it was so painful. But it's God or evolution or the fairies or whoever made us so that the shock kicks in so that we can do what we have to do before it all goes black. Oh, I love shock. I know. It was amazing. It was the best drug I've ever had in my life. And I don't do drugs. But that day, we drive to the hospital, and I just got to go do it, but everybody was shitty to us. Everyone, the cop who greeted us was shitty. The guy at the desk was super nervous. And he said, okay, we'll wait in that room. We go in the room, and there's a doctor or a nurse with his all his electronics plugged in into the bad news room. We're like, you don't belong in here. So we couldn't even get the sad, mournful telling of the death right because there was like an idiot in there. So the doctor comes in. He was hot. I do remember that. He looked like Justin Hartley, who plays Kevin on This Is Us. I swear to God, he looked like him. He walked in. I was like, oh, hello. Oh, no, that's right. Your husband's dying. 
And it was like, God was like, you should have a pretty mouth tell you this. Something bad is going to happen. And the prettiest person in the world should tell you. I fully believe that that might might be a strategy that they have. Okay. Yeah, they're like, who's on today? You know, Troy, is Troy here? You know, who is the hottest? Who does she like? I don't know. Whatever. We'll send him in. Troy works for everyone. We'll see what happens. So comes in. They tell me they were able to restart his heart, eat whatever. He passed away, whatever. And I was like, fuck. Of course. Because what else do you say? So I have very, as you know, shock, little memory. I called his brother. Um, I called my mom back. I called my sister back. I called my friend Shauna, who is a very close friend of ours. who's also Jewish because I knew that she would know what to do because I thought, okay, now I'm in go mode. So I don't know how to do a funeral, but I certainly don't know that. And I didn't want to fuck it up. So I was like, okay, what do I do? So she goes, got it. So in that time, we're in the thing. We're calling people. Lauren is fielding phone calls. Leslie's in shock, and she's also just in that mode where you're just doing stuff. You're just getting stuff done. And in this barrage of phone calls that are coming in and out of her cell phone, she calls Kenny, who is Scott's cousin. When Kenny gets to the hospital, I called him and his cousin Kim, who lived in Boca, and I said, listen, this is happening. Can you come? And they want to say goodbye. So they come up to the hospital and there was a show on A&E used to, I don't think it's the long called sex sent me to the ER. And Kenny says to Scott's body, dude, if you had just survived this, you could have been on this show. (laughs) Because what else can you say? It was absurd and stupid and wrong because he would have done that. I would have had to have fought him not to apply for that show. Time for a break. We're back. Leslie's husband, Scott, has just died. Sex sent him to the ER, and he didn't even get to live to make that joke and then apply to and get on one of the reality shows that he and Leslie would watch together. It's not fair. It stinks. And now comes the paperwork, the million ways you need to make this loss official in the eyes of the government and the credit bureaus and your wireless network and your doctor's office and, 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 and. And the boxes that you click on everything when you apply for something, single, married, divorced. And now there's another box, widowed. And that literally you go from, no, that's not your box anymore. Your box is down there. And it's the last box. Widow's like the, well, not like this would ever happen. It's like heart attack, diabetes, eaten by a shark. You know, it's like, that's (laughs) it's not going to happen widowhood is the eaten by a shark of marital status. So having to think of myself as this thing, A, not married, not single because he literally is still warm, you know. But I remember maybe two months or so after he died, I did a story 
about going to places in gas stations where you can get really good food. Like there'll be like, you know, Indian food and like Caribbean ladies making the stuff, you know, like biscuits, whatever, like places around Palm Beach County that they have actual food or food trucks. So I go to this gas station in Delray Beach and I'm still wearing my ring, obviously, because it's still quite not real, you know. And I go in, it was this lovely West African man, and he doesn't see my ring. He, I'm just, I assume a pretty lady. I felt like dog crap, but okay, let's say I looked pretty that day. And he goes, oh, hello. I'm like, oh, shit, I got to do this again. I got to do that. I got a boyfriend. I go, Wait, no, I'm married. Sort of. And I go, no, no, I'm married. He goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And his friends go, she's married. I'm like, no, no, it's fine. And then I felt crappy. You don't, if you say I'm widowed, A, no one's going to believe you. B, then that makes you feel bad. Leslie is a widow, though. Even if she was still wearing her wedding ring, even if she hated the word, hated the label, never wanted it, she does eventually find comfort in the fact that she's not alone, that plenty of people, real and fictional, have been here. And spoilers for Grey's Anatomy follow, I had not gotten this far in the show at the time of this interview. I never liked Meredith Grey until McDreamy died. I don't know what it was. I just didn't like her character. I thought she was whiny and annoying and whatever. So when McDreamy died, and he died six months before Scott did, four months. So I remember watching that episode back before I wrote my big story for the paper about Scott. And I quoted her monologue about I'm a widow because she gave voice to it. You know, I'm like you in the movies and the TV and the books, I'm a widow. And I went, shit, yeah, okay. I mean, you know you are the widow when you were in the receiving line. You know you are the widow when you were the one who has to sign shit, you know? But it still doesn't seem like it's a thing you are. It's like a role you're playing. You know, in the role of the widow who has to do the thing is me. Leslie is a widow, and she's a parent, and she's about to be officially and legally a mom. Brooks's adoption is ready to be finalized. They have a date to go back to Maryland and make their family of two legally official. And this is the big feel-good moment we get to end on, right with Leslie and her mom and her baby on the way to the airport at 4 a.m. on their way to a 6 a.m. flight because that's the cheapest option. Sure. So we're getting in the in the Uber and I get a phone call that says, hello, this is Southwest Airlines. Your flight is canceled. We're like, it's a what now? So I'm like, we'll figure it out when we get there. So I, I'm on hold with Southwest. And when we get there, I see this line of people I can see through the window in front of the desk. And I go, crap. We finally get up to the desk and the guy says, so can you go tomorrow? And I go, no. And I go, this is my baby. My husband died and I must be at his adoption. And he goes, okay, sorry. And he's looking, going, wait, wait, no, 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 that's not, no. Okay. And then he says, can you get to Fort Lauderdale? So we go down to Fort Lauderdale. We get there early. I'm drinking a margarita. I may have had two. My mother doesn't stop me. Like it always happens when flights are canceled, everyone who was on those previous flights is now hoping to make it on this other flight. It's a disaster. Leslie is anxiously watching this clock tick, thinking, is she even going to make it to this appointment? Is it a bad look to miss your adoption hearing? She's she's spiraling a little bit. And my mother's like, snap out of it. She's like Cher and Moonstruck, snap out of it. So 
They book us on the flight. We're confirmed for the flight. And we're waiting for the flight. And there's this girl who's trying to get to her friend's 21st birthday party. And she's like, oh, my God, I love Emily so much. I want to go to her party. And I'm like, oh, my God, my husband died. And my son has to be adopted. We got to go tomorrow. We'll miss it. And her father looks to me and he goes, she won. I'm like, thank you. They do win. They get on that flight. And by the time they get to Baltimore, they have enough time to get to their hotel room, sleep about five hours, and get out the door to their big appointment. And of course, we're going during rush hour and we're running a little late. And the social worker calls me and she's like, um, hey, I'm like, no. So we get there. There was another family who was waiting. So they just flipped them. And she goes, there's a lot of people here for you. There's a lot of people here. We get there and my mother literally drops me and the baby off on the street. <laughs> like, go, go, I'm fine. Run in, run, run in. in. Yeah. And I, so I see my friend Melanie and we both go running in. We go upstairs and everybody's there. She means everybody. Everybody. My sister's there. My friends from all around are there. The, the foster parents who first took Brooks in were there with their new baby it was just so beautiful. So my, the platonic love of my life is my friend Jason Plotkin, who is an Emmy-winning um, photojournalist. And so he made a video of us walking to the courtroom and all of the people, you know, like my brother-in-law tying Brooks's tie and he had the little fedora on and like somebody giving him a stuffed monkey. And Brooks is like, what is happening? And I'm trying to explain him what's going on. So we go to the, the judge's chambers and she starts this child will now be the legally adopted child of Leslie Grace Streeter. And the fact that I did not hear Scott's name after my name just broke me. It broke me because it was the whole, it had been a year of overwhelming emotion. And so this part was over. Like from now on, legally, even though he has Scott's name, he's Streeter Zervitz. He, he's not legally on this thing. And they tried to put him on the gift, the birth certificate and he wasn't there to sign it. You know, I know, I know. And I was like, I know, I know. Can't his friend forge it? I I know. They're like, literally, apparently he died. So gigs up. We know he's not here because that's the whole thing. So we take all these pictures and we go to a Jewish deli with his aunts and eat Kugel (laughs) and and, and, uh, potato pancakes and drink uh, Manischewitz and it was really beautiful. Um, and it was just like, even though like he had always been mine, I felt he had, even though he really wasn't legally, um, I felt that, and it was just a new part of being mine, you know, being ours and being part of this family. He was my family anyway, you know, he's relative, but, um, it was so wonderful. And I, I'm that person people go, who cares about graduations? I'm like, I do. If there's a ceremony of any kind, I am there. Can I get a hat? Can I get a thing? Is there a picture? Is there like a, an official statement? I am going to that thing. I mean, why wouldn't you? They, they're they're going to be there anyway. Yeah. It's also like, I think that sometimes we we sort of minimize these uh, these these life events that are like actually the stuff of life you know it's it's if if the only thing that we celebrate is when somebody comes into this world and comes out of this world what's the point what is the point this is a good place for us to end 
with Brooks and Leslie starting their new life together, bittersweetly, without Scott. With a whole bunch of family and friends showing up to welcome Brooks into the fold to try to close that huge, gaping hole that Scott left when he died. But there's more. There's always more. Leslie wrote a book about all of this. It's called Black Widow. It's so good. We link it in the show notes. And right when her book was about to come out, as she was gearing up to travel the country, telling her love story to the masses, COVID-19 canceled all of that. And like many people in media, the paper where she spent 18 years as a columnist went through furloughs. So she and Brooks are packing up for another new beginning. They're leaving the state where Brooks took his first steps, where Scott took his last breath. But they're not leaving Scott behind. Everyone who has lost someone knows you carry them with you, that memories, yeah, they're stored in places, and also in the people who loved that person. And Brooks and Leslie are going back to where lots of people love Scott, where so many of his memories and stories are set where he lives in his friends, his family, where he lives in the memory of Leslie laying eyes on him with his good hair over 30 years ago. Leslie and Brooks are heading back to Baltimore. It's not as good as having Scott with them physically. Of course it isn't, but there's some comfort in knowing that Brooks is going to be surrounded by people who know and love the dad who loved Brooks so, so much the dad he never got to know. That Leslie doesn't have to do this on her own. I had a talk with Scott's friend, Jason. He bought him his first Ravens jersey since Scott did. And that meant so much to me because he goes, I know that Scott would want that. There's a lot of dudes in Baltimore who don't have sons who are very excited about this child moving there. Um, And these are people who loved his father. And he's going to have his own relationship with them. And he's going to have his own relationship with Scott through them. And I don't need to know what they talk about. I don't need to know, you know, what the the deal is with with that. All I need to know is that I I trust them with Scott's memory. Um, And I'm excited about that. This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. And I said that with quite a Minnesota accent. Accent? Then I got Irish. Or Australian, maybe? Hard to say. Things are getting odd tonight. Um, Our producer, Marcel Malikibu, just just a heck of a guy. Phyllis Fletcher, our editor, true, truly wonderful angel. Uh, Hannah Meacock Ross, our our project manager. She she does so much production stuff for us. Jacob Maldonado Medina. What do I say about her? Just uh, this that she's like a is she a, is she a, she's a young millennial senior Gen Z senior Gen Z. 
I don't know. We're we're from different generations. She's a, she's I could have babysat her, but I won't. Jordan Turgeon, our our digital producer, um, my uh, my generational peer. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson, also a wonderful man. Go buy his music, joffreylamarwilson.com. We're a production of American Public Media, APM. I recorded this in my closet. It is extremely sweaty, very sweaty. Not a lot of oxygen gets in here. My husband sealed the door to, to, for sound, and I was like, I feel like that was a threat on me. Like, you sealed it? You just sealed the oxygen off? Okay. Whew. Anyway, um, okay, well, good night, everyone. You might not be listening to this at night, but as I record this, 10.13 Pacific Time, thought you would want to know that. You do not, but that is okay. Um, always have a strong ending. A very important tip from your pal, Nora McInerney. <laughs>